appreciated Mr. League's sermon this morning. So for the sermon this afternoon, if you'll all turn to the book of Lamentations. <laughs> no, he did leave a few things to talk about. But I would like you to, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> I want to start in a little bit different way today. 1 Peter chapter 3 <clears throat> and verse 15. Peter makes some statements here. He said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And sanctify means to put Him in a very special place in your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or a reason to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We need to be ready to give an answer a reason, a defense for the hope that you have, for your beliefs. You might ask, well, why do we have to do this? And when will we have to do this? And to whom will we have to do this? And how do you do this? And Mr. Gwynn mentioned yesterday that we live in very troubling times. And there's a lot of fear People in Europe are concerned about what's going to happen over there. People that have bank accounts are concerned about what's going to happen to the bank accounts. We were in London uh, for a short period of time. I believe it was on Wednesday. And there was a sidewalk preacher there. We were down by the Tower of London. And that area sits right beside the financial district in London. So this guy was standing on the street corner telling people to believe in Jesus. He said, put your trust in God, not in the stock market. And the people that are walking by in their dark suits and white shirts and blue ties all work in the financial district. But, you know, nobody was paying attention to them. Nobody was paying attention to them. But Mr. Gwynn was mentioning we're living in troublesome times. People are beginning to realize that Jesus Christ may return rather soon. It could be tonight, could be tomorrow night, as many people feel. could be 100 years from now. Nobody knows as the world looks at the, the situation. But many people are beginning to believe something is up. We're living in a period of time that is very uncertain. And some big things could happen very quickly. And he was talking about, Mr. Gwynn was talking about yesterday, the need for God's protection. Because God promises protection. But we might ask ourselves today, protection from what? Protection from what? We recognize there are economic uncertainties. But you know, the Bible talks about some things we need to be alert to, troubles that are coming down the road. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I would encourage you, maybe when you go home tonight, read through chapter 3 and 4 of 2 Timothy. Because Paul is talking about a subject that begins in 2 Timothy 3, and it runs into 2 Timothy chapter 4. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, But know this, that in the last days, at the end of the age, perilous times will come. Difficult times, stressful times, troublesome times. And then he lists a lot of things will be going on. Men will be lovers of themselves, focused on number one. Lovers of money, a very materialistic age, boasters, proud. But I want to focus on blasphemers. 
A blasphemer is a person that has intentional indignities to God. God doesn't exist. You're stupid if you believe in God. He's saying this is going to be one of the characteristics as we approach the end of the age, what's happening in society. Then he talks about in verse 5, they will have a form of godliness, a facade of religion. They will go to church. But religion really doesn't play a big role in their life. It doesn't interfere with their lives. You know, some people say today, well, to me, every day is a Sabbath. And it sounds good. But what it boils down to is I can go shopping any day I want. I can go to football games. I can do whatever I want. But that's not what the Bible says. We are living in an age, especially in America, we're probably one of the most religious countries on the face of the earth, even more so than Italy. Our Sunday church attendance here is about 50 or 60 percent of the population in Italy, where people are 97 percent Catholic, 98 percent Catholic. They only have about 8 percent of their people in church on Sunday. They're not as religious as Americans are. But Paul is talking about a facade of religion. People present themselves as being religious, but religion really doesn't play a role in their life. They keep whatever days they want to keep, or don't keep any day. But Paul is warning about this. Having a form of godliness, but denying its authority, denying its power. power. And he says, turn away from such people. Then he talks about religious people that will creep into homes and lead astray people if they're gullible. Then down in chapter 4, verse 1, continuing on, Paul says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. He's coming back, and there is going to be a judgment. Preach the word. Now, there are people that preach about the Bible today but they don't explain what the Bible really means. They'll take a verse out of context and build a sermon around it, as opposed to looking up everything that the Bible says about a subject. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Today is the day of Pentecost. And we're obligated to talk about what the day of Pentecost means and how it applies to us, as Mr. League did this morning, and I want to this afternoon. He talks about convincing, to speak powerfully, with conviction, to rebuke, to point out what's wrong, and to point out what's right, exhort, encourage, inspire, with all long-suffering, with all patience and teaching. And it talks about people will turn away their ears from the truth to fables. And it literally blows my mind. The people today who used to sit in the church of God are now off doing other things when the very things we've been talking about for 50 or 60 years are coming to pass. And yet people have found new truth and are out doing other things, buying into fables and false ideas. But these are some of the things we need to be alert to and to be preparing how to deal with these things, not only answering questions to others, but answering questions that come up in your own minds. Do I really understand the truth? Have I been deceived? What is the truth? 
But Paul is talking about things that are going to be happening at the end of the age. And as we're seeing things happening today, almost just one event right after another. Things are not going to slow down. They're going to continue to speed up. People are going to be surprised, I think, what's going to happen. Turn now to 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I would encourage you to read these two chapters again when you go home this evening or maybe over the coming week. 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. Peter is talking about what is going to be happening as we approach the end of the age. Chapter 2 verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets and will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. You might want to look this up in a couple of different translations. Who will cunningly bring in destructive heresies. Who will have a concealed agenda. For those of you that were in the Worldwide Church of God when it came apart, the young men that were taking over the church said, uh, we don't have an agenda. We're just discovering what's in the Bible. Christ is leading us. Trust us. Whereas many of you that came into the church, you heard Mr. Armstrong say and Dr. Meredith say, as we're saying today, don't believe us, believe your Bible. You know, when I came in contact with the truth, I think I spent the first month every Sabbath in the library because I didn't know what else to do or where else to go. I'd go to the library and it started opened at about 8 o'clock in the morning and I'd leave about 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon because I was trying to find out what the truth was and nail down what I could prove. I didn't come because my friends were here. I didn't know anybody in the church, as many of you did. But Paul is warning here, Peter is warning here, people but will secretly, cunningly, subtly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them. And many, not a few, but many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. I was listening to a preacher not too long ago. He was talking to his congregation. And he said, you know, anybody that keeps the Sabbath or the holy days or the dietary laws are following a man-made religion. And you need to get rid of that garbage. That's pretty strong stuff. He's ridiculing what you believe. He made some other interesting comments. He said, you know, these Jewish dietary laws are just like pizza for the Italians and like tacos for the Mexican-Americans. In other words, it's just a cultural thing. It's a, it's a man-made thing. You know, he overlooks the fact who outlined the dietary laws. God. Who established the Sabbath? Not the Jews. God did. Who established the holy days? God did. You know, he's blaspheming the very Word of God. I don't think I'd like to be in his shoes. But this is what's happening today in a country that says on its coins, in God we trust. Mr. League's comment this morning about the gentleman said, have you met my Jesus? He said, no, I haven't. The Bible talks about a different Jesus. Another Jesus will be preached. 
And it talks about a different spirit will lead people. And they'll be preaching a different gospel. Read about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. First four verses that are there. This is the world we are living in today. We're going to have to give some answers for the hope that does lie within us. You, know, you can review later Matthew 10, Matthew 24, where Jesus said, and the implication is towards the end of the age. Now, this has happened down through history. But this is going to build to a crescendo as we get close to the end of the age. He said, you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. This preacher was not preaching love to anybody who kept the Sabbath or kept the holy days. He said, this is garbage. This is a man-made religion. No, God made it. God made it. But we're told that things are going to get difficult as we approach the end of the age. You know, when you think back, who was it that persecuted Jesus Christ? It was the religious establishment. It was the religious establishment in Jerusalem and other places, the scribes and the Pharisees, but also pagan priests. What happened in Ephesus? Read about it in Acts 19. You know, Paul was preaching about other gods, apparently had such an impact that the trade that was making uh, little statues of the goddess Diana, their trade was being affected. And they got upset because their business was going down the tubes. And they dragged people into a, you know, an amphitheater there. It's going to be interesting to see how much of an impact we're going to have on the world. It's also going to be sobering to see what the reaction is going to be when people learn the truth. What I want to talk about today is what happened on the day of Pentecost. I've entitled this, you can choose your own title. One title I came up with was The Holy Spirit, The Gift of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, The Gift of Pentecost. Another title was Pentecost, The Holy Spirit, and You. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, and you. The day of Pentecost is a very important day in the plan of God. You know, the holy days are kind of like signposts on the road that keep us focused in the right direction. I was thinking, too, you know, the holy days are kind of like a spiritual GPS. A spiritual GPS that tells us, turn right, turn left, you're at the point now, turn over this way. We were riding through Arkansas one time with Mr. Crockett. He's from Arkansas. He had his own little GPS, and we're driving down a road coming out of the airport. And his feminine voice said, uh, you missed your turn, turn around and go back. Mr. Crockett said, be quiet, I know where I'm going. <laughs> But, you know, the holy days are there to keep us pointed in the right direction, to explain what's happening, and also reveal to us what is going to happen. And this is one of the reasons we are commanded to keep the day of Pentecost as well as the other holy days. I want to ask about seven questions, and we'll try and go through this relatively quickly. Some are not real detailed, but others are. Why are we here today? Now think in terms of giving an answer for the hope that lies within you. Are you here because Mr. Armstrong said you ought to do this? 
Are you here because Dr. Meredith said, you better be here or I'm going to kick you out of the church? Why are you here? Why are you here? Turn back to Leviticus 23 very quickly. So we have newer people here. We have some older people. But as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you're preaching the Word in season. Explain, review why we're here. We never want to forget these things. Leviticus 23 outlines the holy days. And it's interesting, the holy days are not referred to as the holy days of the Jews. It's not referred to as the holy days of Moses. I think Leviticus is in my Bible too. Here we go. Leviticus 23. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. They're the feasts of God, the feasts of the Lord, not the feasts of the Jews, not the feasts of Moses, but the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations mean commanded assemblies. We don't have the liberty. Well, I really don't know whether I'm going to church tomorrow or not on, on Pentecost. Uh, um, I might miss something. Or there's a sale on at uh, Walmart. Mr. League has passes to Walmart, we heard. <laughs> no, we're commanded to be here, not because God is this big ogre with a big fly swatter waiting to just swat anybody that doesn't come. When you stop keeping the holy days and you start keeping Christmas and Easter, you lose sight of the plan of God. How many of you talk to people, friends, that used to attend church? And you mention, well, uh, we have services today. It's, It's Pentecost. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about it. It's amazing how quickly people can lose track once they drift away from the church or they've moved on. They've moved on to bigger and better things. Now, these are the feasts of the Lord. They're commanded assemblies so we don't forget. In verse 15, it talks about, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. This is uh, in the days of unleavened bread. Seven Sabbaths, or seven weeks. And that's where we come up in the Bible. That's where the Bible comes up with the name, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of First Fruits, because they offered two wave loaves that were made from the first fruits of the harvest. But these are the names that are found in the Bible. Count 50 days, basically seven weeks, and you come out and you start, uh, you come out basically on a Sunday. Then down in uh, verse 21, it says, You will proclaim on the same day that is a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. When I went to college in Pennsylvania, it was a religious school, Presbyterian school. We had a convocation every Wednesday morning. And it was a commanded assembly. It was a convocation. We had assigned seats. There was an upperclassman sitting up here and noticing, oh, seat 27, Doug Winnell is not here. We were allowed three cuts. And after that, they started dropping our grades by a letter. Not too many people, well, most everybody cut up to three. (laughs) And then they had to be there. (laughs) Typical college students. 
But it was a convocation. It was a commanded assembly. We had to be there. And we got docked if we weren't. Now, God has established commanded assembly so that we're here. And we don't forget. It's for our good, for our benefit. Not something to punish us with. But it says also here, you shall do no customary work. It's not a day to work. It'll be a statute forever. Not just up until Christ comes the first time. But a statute forever throughout your generations. So this is why we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread. Excuse me, the Feast of uh, Pentecost. It's a commanded assembly. It's interesting, you go through the Old Testament, and when it talks about first fruits, because this is one of the names of the, the Day of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, the Bible in the Old Testament talks about physical things, the first fruits of the harvest, and the, the loaves that are made out of the first fruits of the harvest. But you have to go to the New Testament to find the spiritual dimension of the day. And the New Testament talks about there's a spiritual symbolism that is fulfilled on this day. Talking about first fruits, maybe just jot these down and you can check them later. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Talks about Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those that sleep. In other words, there's more fruits coming along later. So I guess that makes you and I fruits. Because <laughs> we're coming later. <laughs> But it's a play on words, the first fruits, the first fruits of God's spiritual harvest. In James chapter 1, verse 18, James says, We are the first fruits, or we are a sort of first fruits of God's creatures. And God has a plan, He has a purpose. And one of the interesting scriptures then in Revelation 14, 14, Chapter 14, verse 14, talks about the 144,000 are the first fruits of God. The first fruits of God's plan. He's going to use these people as kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. So there is a spiritual dimension that you pick up in the New Testament that Jews don't understand. For anybody that's looking only at the Old Testament, you come up with these physical things, but there's a spiritual dimension in the New Testament. And you and I have been called to be the first fruits in God's plan when Christ returns. He's going to need a group of people that are ready and prepared to teach the law of God, to point out God's way of life. And you're being prepared to do that right now. You and I are being molded and fashioned to become these first fruits. So it's an extremely important day to remember in Acts chapter 2, now let's go to the New Testament and notice as Mr. Ruddleson was talking about the historical events that took place on this day. But let's start in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Because we need to get the background. <clears throat> Jesus commanded his disciples to do something. He didn't just say, just believe in me and everything will be fine. Give your heart to the Lord. Beginning in verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, that is Christ with his disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So I want you to wait. 
for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when I asked him, or when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, he had been talking about they were going to be over cities and so on, and this is what they were excited about. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or season which the Father has put under his own authority, but you shall receive power. Maybe put a circle around that word for right now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It doesn't appear that the apostles went to the end of the earth, but the Internet does. The Internet does. Behind the Iron Curtain uh, into China, uh, you know, Mr. Hernandez has visited people down in Terra del Fuego, <laughs> the very bottom of uh, the continent of South America. We've got uh, members down in Cape Town in South Africa, the bottom of the African continent. Uh, we're having an opportunity to go to the ends of the earth today that the apostles never had. But Jesus said, wait. He gave them instructions. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power that is going to come. Now let's go to chapter 2. And this is also instructive. It says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. They weren't meeting in different places under different names and all claiming to be members of God's church. They were with one accord in one place. And that was where God poured out His Holy Spirit. It wasn't in one little congregation over here in one part of Jerusalem and another little congregation in that part of Jerusalem. They were in one place with one accord. Because, as we will see, they were being led by one Spirit. That's why they were together. If they would have been in different places, we wouldn't be reading what we read in the book of Acts. Verse 2, Then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared uh, divided tongues uh, of fire, as of fire, and sat on each one of them. So you know, they began to glow, uh, something on their head, whatever it was. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now some people say that they were speaking in in uh, some sort of an ecstatic utterance, where you start doing something like that. But if you just merely read the account, it explains what was happening here. Uh, they began to speak with other tongues. Actually, if you look up other translations, said that in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Down in verse 6, verse 5. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. They had made a pilgrimage there. They were there keeping the holy day. Notice they were not keeping Sunday. New Testament church did not start on Sunday afternoon. It started on Pentecost, a biblical holy day that they were there keeping. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It was a language that they were hearing. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't some ecstatic utterance. And some of you may have attended some Pentecostal-type meetings, and people start gibbering and falling on the floor and uh, going into convulsions or whatever. 
this was a very logical thing. They were speaking in languages that were understood because it tells you where these people came from. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, people from the east, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. This is Asia Minor, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya. This is where people were coming from. They spoke in different languages, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language, not some gibberish. They heard everyone, as we read here in verse 6, in their own language. Down in verse 11, it talks about Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our tongues. It's not gibberish, not some ecstatic thing. It was in a language. And so some people today try and, and get the Spirit. They pray down the Spirit, and then they you know, go through these gyrations and start jabbering away. I remember talking with a fellow in Austria, I think it was. He came and said he wanted a personal visit, so I was over there a number of years ago. And he said, you know, you guys really seem to have just about everything right, except for one thing. He said, you need to be speaking in tongues. He said, I do it every day. He said, it makes me feel good. The purpose of speaking in different languages was so the gospel could be spread, not to make somebody feel good. It's a very different approach. It's a very different approach. But this happened on the day of Pentecost. It was a very powerful beginning to the church of God. If you notice over in uh, verse 40, 41, you know, Peter preached a sermon on that day. We'll come back to that in just a little bit, where he's telling them to be saved from this perverse generation, a generation that is perverse and turned away from God. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized that day. About 3,000 souls were added to the church on that day. So this is why we're here. We're here because God commands us to be here. And you might want to ask a couple of more questions. Were these people, these 3,000 that were baptized, did they just happen to be standing around that day? Or was God working out a plan and a purpose? If you notice and remember several scriptures, God has a plan. He has a purpose in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus made the statement to his disciples. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 44. Now keep this in mind when we talk about the day of Pentecost and these 3,000 people. These were people that had seen the apostles and heard the apostles preaching. They had seen Jesus crucified. They had heard the apostles explaining what this was all about. Peter put it in perspective that day. But God has been working with people. Notice in verse 44, Jesus told his disciples, No man or no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws that person. These weren't people just standing around gawking. God apparently was working with people, opening their minds to be able to understand no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws that person. And then Jesus repeats this a little bit later in verse 65. Therefore I said unto you, or this is why I said unto you earlier, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. It appears that Jesus Christ, God the Father, was working with these people. This is 3,000 out of maybe... I don't know what the population was of Jerusalem at that time, but probably hundreds of thousands of people. 3,000 is not a real big number out of that number. 
But God has been calling people down through the ages. Mr. Gwynn read a scripture yesterday, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Where again, Paul made the statement, not many wise, not many mighty are called. God is not calling large numbers of people, especially the high and the mighty, the highly educated and so on, just us chickens. People dumb enough to believe the Bible, (laughs) as some would say. But God is not calling everyone now. He has a plan. He has a purpose He's working out. Some people are given opportunities now, and other people will get their opportunities later. Matthew 13. Let's turn there quickly. Matthew 13, verse 10, starting there. Jesus explained to His disciples how God's plan works. And this plan is pictured in the holy days. Matthew chapter 10. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus' disciples asked Him, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus' answer, Because it has been given, verse 11, to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And many of you are sitting here today because you realize there's something different about the church of God. The letters that Mr. McNair read during the announcements, people saying, send me more, I'm hungry. That's because God is calling a person and granting them an understanding of what the Bible really does say and what our purpose is on this earth and what God is doing. The world doesn't understand these things. Mr. League was talking about he tried to convince his brothers and sisters and members of his family. It was kind of like, get out of here. I don't want to hear it. When I learned about the truth, my parents wanted me to see a minister. There's something wrong with me. (laughs) And they wanted this minister to straighten me out. But, you know, the ministers don't have answers in this world. They don't have answers that the Bible explains because they don't understand it. remember hearing one person preach one time. He said, I don't preach much about prophecy because I don't understand it. But he'd been to a seminary. God says of his church, Peter says that, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Don't understand it perfectly. I tell you, we understand it better than Billy Graham and many others. And it's not bragging, it's just a matter of fact. Mr. Armstrong was saying, back in the 40s, late 30s, early 40s, Germany is going to come back and lead Europe. And that's exactly what's happening today. The Bible prophecies in Deuteronomy talk about uh, we're going to be persecuted or attacked in our gates. And that also is what's happening. Britain, America has lost our sea gates, land gates. Mr. Armstrong was saying that 50 or 60 years ago. God is in charge. God is working things out, and He's given His church an understanding of Bible prophecy. You're not here with some little group that's very insignificant. God has a plan and a purpose for His church. And I think we'll see that God has a plan and purpose for all of us, probably even individually. We're being called and trained for reasons and positions. And the Bible indicates in Revelation 3, there's a crown there for you. 
when we were in London last week, we walked through the Tower of London, and they have all the crown jewels on display. And there are a number of different crowns over there that various kings and queens have used. If we follow the analogy through, and there's a crown up here for, for you, but we could lose it. The Bible talks about don't let anyone take your crown. You know, I got fired for giving a sermon in Big Sandy when all the changes were taking place. And the day I got fired by a young fellow, I walked out of the room and kind of poked him in the ribs and smiled at him. And what I'm thinking in my mind is, you can't have my crown. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not going to let you take it either. You know, we've got to have a certain amount of guts and perseverance not to let go of the calling that God has given us. And not let somebody talk you out of it or make fun of what you believe and then walk away from it. And we've got to hang on to what it is that God has opened our mind to understand. And it's not going to be easy in the months and years ahead because people are going to laugh, they're going to persecute, make fun, and there may be legal sanctions. You know, I remember reading... Ten years ago, that in the legislation in the European Union, they had put in there a phrase or a paragraph talking about uh, the importance of Sunday. It's under health legislation. It's under health legislation. And the Germans started to use it about a year ago. They said, we need to legislate family time. We need to legislate time for families to be together, and we're legislating Sunday as that day. So what's going to happen to the Jews in Europe that have shops that are open on Sunday? They've got to close them on Saturday because of their religion if they're following it, and close them on Sunday because of EU legislation. See, it's there. And we've been talking about for years that one of the marks of the beast will probably be enforced Sunday worship or enforced Sunday activities. Everything religious has to be on Sunday, the family day. And it'll be backed up by European legislation. Same thing happened in Rome, the 300s. The church established Sunday. We're promoting it, but they got Roman law to back it up. And you couldn't hold meetings on the Sabbath. You couldn't Judaize. You couldn't do anything like that. Otherwise, you faced tribunals. So these are some things we may be facing down the road. So we need to keep in mind what's coming. <clears throat> what is the Holy Spirit? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. What is it? And why is this important to you as a young person or an older person? What is the Holy Spirit? I remember talking with a, uh, a young person one time that I visited. He had come across our broadcast or magazine years ago. And uh, he had certain ideas that he was kind of checking us out with. You know, is the Holy Spirit a person? Is it the third person of the Trinity? Or is it something else? This young fellow I had to visit with, he said, Do you believe in a Trinity? I said, No. He said, Well, this paperback book tells me then you're a false prophet. 
Because if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you've got to be a false church because the Trinity is so basic, is it? Find the word in the Bible. It's not there. Notice, what is the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 1. We'll do this quickly. Had you circle a word. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem and you receive power. He didn't say a person. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Go to John 14. Again, one of the reasons for making a quick review of some of these things is that you have got to be convinced in your own mind what the truth is. As one minister told me whenever I was counseling for baptism, he said, you may need to back your mind into a corner. Ask it some questions and don't let it out of the corner until it answers. (laughs) Do you know the truth? Do you know that you know that you know the truth? What does the Bible reveal about the Holy Spirit? John 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father or pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive. Now, people read this and say, well, it must be a person because it's talking about he. Um, But the answer to this question is basically the word helper is parakletos in the Greek. Parakletos, P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S. means a helper, an advocate, a comforter. The word is masculine. The word is masculine. So you need a masculine pronoun to go with it. You know, for those of you that speak Spanish, a table, the word for table is la mesa. It's feminine. But I've checked tables and you can't tell. (laughs) But you talk about la mesa, the table, she. You have to use a feminine article with the word. Uh, I believe the, the word for pig is el gordo. So the pig, he. Not the pig she, but the pig he, because the word gordo is masculine. So you use a masculine article. That's why he is used here. You know, a better translation would be it, because it's really a neuter thing. It's interesting that the Greek word for spirit is a neuter word, a neutral word, whereas the Hebrew word ruach for spirit is feminine. So you can't have a spirit that's both masculine and feminine and neuter. <laughs> It depends on the pronoun, or the pronoun depends on the the gender of the word. What's really interesting, you can check this out in the New Catholic Encyclopedia. It makes this statement. The Old Testament clearly does not envision God's spirit as a person. This is the Catholic Encyclopedia. The Old Testament clearly does not envision God's spirit as a person. God's spirit is simply God's power which is basically what we have taught over the years. The majority of New Testament text reveals that God's Spirit as something, excuse me, yeah, as something, not someone. The majority of New Testament texts reveal God's Spirit as something, not someone. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a third person of the Trinity. Let's turn to Romans very quickly for a couple of examples. And the Bible does not support this idea of a three-person God. 
Paul mentions in virtually every one of his epistles, in his salutations, in his introduction, greetings. In verse 7 of Romans chapter 1, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit as a person here in the beginning. There's no mention of a trinity. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Go to the very last verse in the last chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 16, verse 27. These are just a couple of quick examples. Paul is concluding the letter. He says, to God alone, verse 27, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. No mention of the Trinity, no mention of a third person, no mention of the Holy Spirit being a, a person. 1 Corinthians, probably just across the page in your Bible or the next page. Paul's uh, greetings to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No reference to a trinity, no reference to a third person here. Paul just doesn't address that. And yet this has become one of the fundamental teachings of Protestant and Catholic Christianity that there is a trinity. The Bible doesn't say that. You can't find the word in the Bible. It's just not there. So what is the Holy Spirit? It's a power. It's the power of God's Spirit. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? What do you do to receive the Holy Spirit? The Bible talks about a guy that tried to buy it that you're familiar with. But the Bible gives us the answer to these questions. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. People were moved by that sermon. And it appears that they were people that God was calling. Starting in verse 37, when people heard what Peter was preaching about, it says, now when they heard this, this is verse 36. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? What do we do now? You know, we believe what you're saying. Then Peter said to them, Repent. He didn't say, Just give your heart to the Lord and everything will be fine. He said, Repent. The word means change your life. Change the direction that you're going. And when you came into the church, you changed your life. You started keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days. You began eating things that were different. And then you began to realize, I've got to think differently too. <laughs> I can't act the way I used to act. Some things have got to go. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. You make a commitment to God. You make a commitment to live a certain way. You know, I've likened this to kind of buying a new car. You can go down and sit in a new car in a showroom and smell it, and take it for a test drive, but it ain't yours until you sign on the dotted line and you commit to making payments on that car. You know, God doesn't give us His Spirit until we make a commitment that I'm going to live this way of life. I'm not going to turn around and go another way of life. We've got to make a commitment. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that God promises to give us if we do certain things. One other thing is mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 8. This is where Philip goes down to Samaria, and he encounters Simon, who is a magician. He sees the uh, miracles that Philip was doing, and he wants to learn how to do the same thing, be able to do the same thing, because he was losing his audience and his influence. If we pick up in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, and they were baptized by Philip, they sent Peter and John to them, and when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he or it had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them. So there was a prayer. They laid hands on these people, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered the money. <laughs> Let me buy that. I'll pay you well for it. And Peter said, or Philip says, or no, it was Peter said, you, know, you don't understand what you're doing. You can't buy it. You've got to repent and change and go in a different direction. So there are things that we have to do to receive God's Spirit. Why is it important? Why is it important to receive God's Spirit? Why is it important to you as a younger person? Why do you need it? Let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And this is sobering. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not one of his. In other words, without God's spirit, we're not Christians, regardless of what we might think. Is without spirit, without God's spirit, you're not one of mine. You know, if we want to be with Jesus Christ when he returns... And he's passing out rewards. We better have God's Spirit. Otherwise, we're not going to get a reward. We're not going to be there. I've talked about, or I mentioned this to some people, and they don't like that. But that's what the book says. Without God's Spirit, you're not one of mine. You're going to wind up short at the end. Another scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I mentioned this earlier, but let's just look at it quickly. Because we have a warning that we need to be aware of and not forget. Paul's talking about people that are going in the wrong direction in Corinth. Verse 3 of uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted. And he's talking about false teachers. Corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches about another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, a spirit that kind of comes over you and you start shaking and and speaking in some ecstatic utterance that nobody understands. This is not of God. See, there are spiritual powers out there. And somebody that's spoken in tongues, well, yeah, but it's real. Yeah, it sure is real. 
But Jesus Christ didn't operate that way. The church doesn't operate that way. But there's something real. But it was not something you want to play around with. It talks about a different spirit and a different gospel. You might ask yourselves, what is a different Jesus? One that has long hair that you see pictured in all these religious bookstores. One that's teaching that his father, or that he did away with all his father's commandments because they're too hard to keep. His son Sunday's okay. That whatever day that you want to keep is okay. It's not what Christ said. You know, Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament. He was the one that wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments. The Bible says <laughs> God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He didn't come back, he didn't come to make all kinds of alterations. What did he say in Matthew five seventeen? I did not come. Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do destroy those things. As some people were saying when the Worldwide Church of God came apart, we want to hear the good news. We don't want to hear the bad news. Quit talking about prophecy. <laughs> All this bad news stuff. Just talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus Christ inspired the prophecies. What's Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 all about? About prophetic events that are going to take place at the end of the age. And part of our job is to explain what these things mean and how they're being fulfilled today. What's a different spirit? We talked about that a little bit. God is not the author of confusion. You go to some of these churches that are very much into this stuff, and people are in the choir loft all dancing around and doing all kinds. Of, everybody's doing their own thing. It's not decently and in order. And my wife and I went to a wedding, or it was a funeral actually one time in rural Mississippi. You know, it was rural Georgia, I think it was. And people were passing out in the aisles and doing all kinds of things. Before the, the service was over, the, the, the church was a wooden church up on stilts. And before the service was over, the whole church was rocking back and forth. <laughs> I mean, the spirit was moving there. <laughs> but I don't think it was a spirit that you or I would want to be involved with. Now, we've got to recognize these things. There are spirits out there. There are things moving that are not of God, even though God's name is used. And just because God's name is used and they talk about the Bible and they talk about Jesus Christ does not mean, as this verse was saying, a different Jesus, another Jesus, a different spirit. And we've got to be able to discern where God's spirit is and where other spirits are and then stay away from those things. So why is it important? I'm trying to mention those things here. How does God's spirit work? How does God's Spirit work? How do you develop the gifts of God's Spirit, the fruits of God's Spirit? There are things we need to do, and there are ways of recognizing how God's Spirit works. Notice in John 14. Actually, Scripture in John 14, another one in John 15, another one in John 16. Now, these are Scriptures we go over on the night of the Passover. But Jesus was explaining to his disciples the night before he's crucified, here's what you need to look for. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to recognize. In John 14, <clears throat> talking about 
talking about the Holy Spirit, verse 17, it says, Even the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him, that is the true God, the true Jesus Christ, nor knows him. But the Spirit of truth, that's the Spirit that leads you and guides you to understand the truth of God. And if God is not leading and guiding you by His Spirit, you're not going to understand the truth of God. The truth about the Sabbath. The truth about the holy days. The truth about the dietary laws. They're not some just cultural thing like pizza or taco. (laughs) God said these are the things that you should eat. These are the things you should not eat. And these are for your good. They're for your good, for your benefit. And as other nations see the benefits that you have, they're going to want to ask, how do you do it? How come you got these things? Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. How did Mr. Armstrong come to understand what he did? The identity of Israel. The truth about a number of things. It says God's Spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth. John 15. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 16, verse uh, 13. Now Christ is describing the Holy Spirit, how it operates, how it functions. However, when he or it, the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For it will speak not of its own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The spirit of prophecy, allowing you to understand where the world is going. See, this is how God's spirit works. Why doesn't Billy Graham understand Bible prophecy? Doesn't keep the commandments. God says in Acts 5.32, I think it is, That God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him, to those who keep His commandments. If you don't keep the commandments, you're not going to receive God's Spirit. You're not going to understand Bible prophecy. I mean, all this fits together. It's very powerful. So God's Spirit leads and guides us into all truth. We can read in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, and Acts chapter 8 about the miracles. Let's go to Acts chapter 6 quickly. He's talking about Stephen. He was ordained as one of several deacons. But notice the qualifications. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with God's Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, taking care of some physical things. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was filled with God's Spirit and filled with faith. Also Philip, who later went down to Samaria, mentions the other names here. They laid hands on them. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, he was full of God's Spirit, 
did great wonders and signs among the people. He was a deacon at that time, not an evangelist, not an apostle. He'd just been ordained, but he was filled with God's Spirit. And it made an incredible impact on people. That's how God's Spirit works. Go to Romans chapter 12. We'll go through this rather quickly, but there's a whole list of things, qualities, that uh, are described in some cases as fruits, in other cases as gifts of God's Spirit. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, start there. It says, For I say, through the grace of God given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. Having gifts differently, <clears throat> gifts differing, verse 6, according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, it's talking about inspired preaching, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. Or ministry, it's talking about administration, organization, let us use it uh, in our ministering. He who teaches, uh, focus on teaching, do a good job. He who exhorts, focus on exhortation. He who gives, do it with liberality. Uh, he who leads, do it with diligence. And he who shows mercy, basically talking about the poor and the sick here, with cheerfulness. But you know, the thrust of what Paul is saying, as a number of commentaries point out, what Paul is focusing more so instead of on the, on the gifts, he's talking about the attitude in which you use those gifts. He says, think soberly, not more highly than you ought to. Uh, as one of the commentaries made the comment, it said, uh, this phrase, in proportion to your faith, refers to grasping the nature of one's spiritual gift and having confidence to use it rightly. Having the confidence to use it rightly. If you can speak in a very powerful, convincing way, do it to the best of your ability, humbly. To the best of your ability, humbly. As opposed to getting carried away with your own importance. Or you might think, I'm the richest person in church. I like to give. <laughs> Giving is fine, but the idea, well, I'm the richest person, <laughs> is not real humble. Or I just, lo I just love organization. I'll organize everything. No. <laughs> just organize what you've been asked to organize. <laughs> Don't try and organize everybody else. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about an attitude. To do what you do, what you recognize you can do well, do it well. Humbly, quietly, without a lot of fanfare. And this is what God is after. It's what God is looking for. Down in verse... Uh, 16, it says, Be of the same mind one towards another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't get carried away with pride, because it's going to interfere with the use of whatever gift God has given you. But here we have a number of gifts of God's Spirit, and a number of probably natural abilities go along with some of these things. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks there about the gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> and Dr. Meredith has urged us to pray for and ask God to grant more of His Spirit to the church. 
I think he's talking more about the, the healings and so on. These are spectacular. People notice those things. But there are a number of other gifts that are also involved that we need to be striving to develop. Verse 4, it says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. It's the same Spirit that makes these things possible. There are differences of ministries or administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's not for our personal edification to kind of make us important. And we need to be thankful for the different gifts that different people have. You know, I'm, I'm computer challenged. <laughs> but I'm glad when uh, Josh Penman or Josh Beatty come in the door and say, here's how you do this. <laughs> and they press the right buttons. The guys in TV, I don't have the skills that they do. Uh, you know, we all have different gifts to use. And what Paul is saying here, it's for the benefit of all. For to one is given a spirit of wisdom through the spirit, another the word of knowledge, uh, uh, through the same Spirit to another faith, and is talking there about enduring trials and not losing your faith during those trials, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, this inspired preaching primarily, to another discerning spirits, to another different gifts of tongues, and it's talking about languages, but one in the same Spirit works all of these things. So these are some of the gifts of God's Spirit that we can pray for and strive to develop. You know, if God has given you certain abilities, develop those with your children. Notice what abilities that they have been born with. If it's musical, help them develop those things. Help them find out and help them not to be discouraged if um, they can't do something. I remember... Whenever we lived up in Boston uh, back in the 70s, Larry Bird was one of the basketball players up there. He was a white guy. And he was asked one time, are you going to be in a slam dunk, slam dunk contest? He says, not me. Because <laughs> when you watched him run, it was clunk, 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 clunk. He was not Michael Jordan, and he knew it. He said, not me. But what Larry Bird had was a sense of, of where everybody was on the court. And he used that in lieu of this athletic ability that Michael Jordan had. But he recognized what his gift was, and he recognized what his gift wasn't. <laughs> he said, no, that's not me. He said, you've got to look for somebody else to do that. Because there's nothing wrong with helping your children recognize, and even yourself, what are the talents and abilities God has given you. And then develop those. Galatians chapter 5, let's look at that quickly, <clears throat> talks about the fruits of God's Spirit. Now, these are things we can all strive to develop. And then there are other things that are talked about here that we really need to strive to get rid of. The works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> talks about the works of the flesh. In verse 19, fornication, adultery, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. If you find yourself getting into arguments, you can kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm probably not exercising the right spirit here. We need to be working on these things. 
jealousies, outbursts of wrath. We got a short fuse. Maybe add some string to that fuse. <laughs> count to ten, count to a hundred. If you tend to fly off, this, this is not of God. Selfish ambitions, how come he got ordained? How come she got the coffee pot? I've been here longer than she has. You know, I need to have those hymnals. You know, I need to be doing that. You know, God's not going to let people get lost and have abilities. But he might let us cool our heels for a while <laughs> until we get our attitude right. Fruits of the Spirit, verse 22. This is what we need to be developing. Love. It's an unselfish, outgoing concern where you care for people. Joy. You appreciate the truth that God has opened your minds to understand. You appreciate the fact that you've had a chance, in most of your cases, to grow up and live in a country where we have the freedoms that we do. Joy. Peace. You're at peace with yourself. Sometimes people are difficult to get along with because they're not at peace with themselves. They either don't like themselves or they feel like they've gotten a raw deal and they're unhappy. And they make everybody else unhappy that gets around them. We need to be at peace with ourselves and we need to become peacemakers. Long-suffering means patience. Kindness. Kindness. Where you're kind to people. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who are Christ, verse 24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. They've gotten rid of these. And they're really working on that, the fruits of the, the works of the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, and then these fruits of God's Spirit are going to come out in our lives. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, there's a number of different places where we could go to learn about the fruits of God's Spirit, things that we need to be striving to develop in our lives. And James is kind of addressing situations here on a general theme, but he says, He who is wise and understanding, or who is wise and understanding among you? Kind of a tongue in cheek question. Let him show by good conduct, good behavior, that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if any of you have bitter envy or self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom has not come from God or from above. This is earthly, sensual, and demonic. That's where these attitudes come from. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is talking about the fruits of God's Spirit. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. Oh, I know him, I know her, they're always evil. That's not pure. (laughs) It's looking for motives every time you turn around. You're you're not going to be naive, but you're going to look on the positive. I know they've got problems, but they've got a lot of potential. Then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Other translations say easy to be entreated. You're dealing with some people's like dealing with a porcupine. You mention one thing and <laughs> up come the bristles. <laughs> no, we've got to be easily entreated. You know, somebody might not agree with us, but we don't have to let them have it first. Listen. Try and understand why they are upset. 
I remember one guy at the feast one year, he came up and I'd never met him before. And he just lit into me. And just, I let him talk. And when he was done, I said, uh, let's get back together in a day or two. He'd run out of gas after that. <laughs> we got together and had a decent discussion. But he had all this stuff built up inside. And I had to be easily entreated. I felt like doing or saying something else. But that wouldn't have solved the problem. It would only aggravated it. But being easily entreated, uh, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So these are a number of things. You can also check out uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about one spirit, and it talks about a spirit of unity. It was interesting. <clears throat> the ministerial conference that we had here just recently, you know, we've literally received dozens of, of comments. And they were basically, this has been the most united, most peaceful conference they'd ever been to. But we had 230 people or more that were there. And they were, this was not a put-on. One person said, you know, a lot of people talk about unity, but there really was something different there. There really was. Another person who had never been to a conference before, but he's been to other big conferences, he said, it's rare. It's rare to have so many people in one room that are of the same mind. Now, why is that? Because they're being led by the same Spirit. Being led by the same Spirit. And why is this important? Number of reasons. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, we've got to be led by God's Spirit. We need to become of one mind. Now, we're not all going to think the same because we're coming from different backgrounds in different places. But we need to be on the same page spiritually. We need to be able to work together as opposed to undermining each other. You know, Dr. Meredith has talked about asking God to grant us more of His Spirit. Can God give us the gifts of His Spirit if we can't get along with one another? Can He give us the gifts of His Spirit if we really don't love each other? Now, He can do whatever He wants. You find that Paul and Barnabas had trouble getting along, but they were healing people. But eventually they did get along. And so there may be things that we're doing that limits God to be able to do things that He would like to do with us and through us. You know, we believe we are the Philadelphia remnant. Philadelphia means brotherly love. I think sometimes we think, well, we're Philadelphians because we know the truth and they don't. But as we heard in one of the letters that Mr. McNair wrote, people came into a congregation and they sensed warmth. They sensed brotherly love. And that spoke volumes. That spoke volumes. You know, if we can exercise the fruits of God's Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, God is going to be able to use us and use us powerfully to reach this world with a message. He's given us an understanding of Bible prophecy. He's given us an understanding of His truth. But the fruits of God's Spirit, we read about in Galatians chapter 5, 
are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness as well as discernment, a lot of other things. I'll give you an assignment in closing. Maybe do a Bible study and find out what you have to do and what I have to do to receive more of God's Spirit. I'll give you a couple of hints. Matthew 7 says, Ask and seek and knock. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7 talks about stirring up the gift of God's Spirit. Stirring it up, fanning it into flame with regular Bible study, with regular prayer, and determined efforts to exercise the fruits of God's Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that the inward man, the Holy Spirit, must be renewed daily. We can't go for days without praying or days without studying because then we wind up running on fumes. And we're basically going to run out of gas sooner or later. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Don't quench the Spirit. See, God gives us a gift at baptism with the laying on of hands. But then we're also told, Don't quench the Spirit. If that carpet would catch on floor or catch on fire, there's a glass of water up here. We can quench the Spirit. If we're not praying, we're not studying, and we're not being led by God's Spirit. I know I should like that person, but I don't. (laughs) We're going to quench God's Spirit. The day of Pentecost, God gave us to keep us mindful of the fact that He raised up His New Testament church. He poured out His Spirit powerfully on that church. And the implication is, go back and read Acts chapter 2. At the end of the age, he's going to be pouring out his Spirit again in a very powerful way. But as one of the commentaries mentioned, what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 is the attitude. We've got to have an attitude where we can humbly and rightly use those gifts. Not for our own gratification, not for our own edification, but for the benefit of God's church and the benefit of God's people. So I hope that we found the day of Pentecost today spiritually nourishing, and we've got our work to do.